Welcome, friends, to a history of the King James Bible podcast. To find more episodes and information, just go to our website, www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now here is G.K. with the latest episode. Well, welcome back to a History of the King James Bible podcast. How are you finding it so far? Uh, please write and let me know what you think. What I'm attempting to do in these first few episodes is to highlight some pertinent points concerning the character of King James and, and how that character was developed so we can get a bit of a picture of the man behind the Bible. Now, I'm not intimating here that he wrote it, but his name's on it. And uh, that's why I really wanted to dig in deep behind there before we get to uh, the Bible itself. But let's move on. Let's dig in. Um, this is episode three, and we will call it The Next 40 Years, Part A. Um, and I should say at this point, it might be worth going back to episode two for a listen if you haven't heard it already, as I'm just going to dive right in here. As the 1580s continued, a formal alliance was made with England, but this new relationship with England was soon put under some strain. The accusations were that James's mother had given approval for a plot to murder Queen Elizabeth. The English Secretary of State, Sir Francis Walsingham, had gathered a team of secret agents, secret double agents, cipherers and linguists who missed very little in their intelligence gathering. Now, Mary, not unaware of how things worked, supposedly committed very little to paper that might see her in trouble. Um, and keep in mind at this time she's in England under what I term a loose house arrest. But this was just about to change because Mary had slipped up and Walsingham's eyes and ears didn't miss it. The Babington plot had been hatched by the Jesuit priest John Ballard and one Anthony Babington and others whose goal was the invasion of England by Spain and the Catholic League with a simultaneous insurrection by the Catholics in England. The ultimate aim of this plot was to rescue Mary, assassinate Elizabeth, and put Mary on the throne, and thus restore Catholicism to England. Let me read a little from an internet article on the topic from History Magazine. Don't forget to check my references section, which I plan to update regularly with regard to the sources used in this series. Okay, so from this article. Walsingham hired Gilbert Gifford, an exiled English Catholic, as a double agent, Gifford was to re-establish contact with Mary. Letters between Mary and her supporters, including Babington's letters, were sent via a beer keg supplied by a brewer. By using Gifford, correspondence could be maintained and intercepted without raising suspicions amongst Mary's supporters. While in his possession, Walsingham had the letters deciphered and copied, in 1586, Babington wrote a letter outlining the details of the plot to rescue Mary. In the letter, Babington asked for Mary's permission to assassinate Elizabeth. Mary responded and agreed with the plans, but did not authorise the assassination. That did not matter, however, because Walsingham's spies intercepted the letter. The letter was deciphered and copied, but this time a postscript was added. According to the new letter, Mary authorised the assassination. Walsingham had his proof. In August 1586, Ballard, the Catholic priest, was arrested and tortured. He named Babington in the plot. Babington, who begged Elizabeth for mercy, 
was tried and executed in 1586. Mary was tried on the basis of the forged evidence and executed in February 1587. Now, I'll give uh, the reference to that uh, article from History Magazine. It will be in my uh, references section. Now, they say that um, basically Mary was set up for the execution, uh, for authorising the execution of Elizabeth. But uh, I think you probably find elsewhere that that wasn't a forgery. It wasn't set up. But uh, anyway, what I'll do is I have a, a copy of that, uh, of Mary's cipher, and I'll put that in the um, article on my website uh, for this episode. So you can go and have a look at that. It's widely available on the internet anyway. So um, so anyway, let's pick it up. James's response before his mother's execution is perhaps not a surprise when you consider what he was told about his mother as he was growing up and her involvement in his father's murder. The French ambassador to Scotland reported that of the matter, James had said the Queen, his mother, might well drink the ale and beer which herself had brewed. This sounds harsh, because on the other hand I've read that James made a show of support for his mother after her imprisonment for this plot, and I'm thinking it wouldn't be a good look if he didn't at least show support for her. Um, but on the other hand, he couldn't go too far because of his new arrangement with England. If Mary did actually agree to the assassination of Lizzie, and he was too supportive of her, it may well threaten the new relationship. In fact, through intelligence channels, secret squirrel kind of stuff, he was warned not to intervene. Nevertheless, he did plead for her life, and I can't say if it was insincere or if it was purely political. In Scotland, even some of those who were not too impressed with her when she reigned didn't want to see Mary executed by the English. And as it was, and it still is, the norm for Bonnie Scotland, some anti-English sentiment was abroad. Nevertheless, she was executed, having been beheaded on the 8th of February, 1587. Lizzie wrote to James explaining that while she had signed the order of execution, she did not expect the warrant to be executed. No pun intended there on my part. It was reported that James didn't take the news of his mother's beheading very well. Indeed, for a period, he did cut off communications with England, and I think it's fair to say that many Scots, French, Spanish and Catholics in general were not impressed with England's execution of Mary, who was seen as a symbol of Catholic hope and a key to bringing the old religion back to England and Scotland. James ordered his court to go into mourning for his mother, but was upset when one of his earls appeared in full armour, having told James that this is the correct way to mourn. Now bear in mind that James didn't like being around armed men, so that would possibly be the reason for his concern there. So what do we make of these somewhat conflicting reports about James? We have him saying that his dear old mum can stew in her, can stew in her own brew, and then we have him breaking off communications with England in protest at her execution. I believe there is more to the story, with multiple issues having their part in it. But reading between the lines, it tells me that James was flesh and blood, just like you and I. And he probably would have mixed feelings about the issue. Add to this, being a politician, he may have even proffered differing perspectives, depending on the audience. And who among us hasn't done that? I'm also aware that some might argue that he never knew his mother anyway since he was separated from her and raised at Stirling Castle since he was a baby. Anyway, look, we'll finish our discussion about Mary here, noting that when he eventually ascended to the English throne, 
James had his mother's body removed from Peterborough Cathedral and moved to an impressive tomb in Westminster Abbey. Not long after the death of his mother, movements were made to see that James would soon marry. He was getting on a bit to be without an heir. While there were some rumours that he may convert to Catholicism and seek a Catholic bride, searches and subsequent inquiries were made seeking a Protestant bride. Over the course of some time, embassies were sent to Denmark, with the eventual choice being between two daughters of King, of King Frederick II, 31-year-old Catherine or 14-year-old Anne. Some favoured Catherine, thinking a more mature woman might bring some stability to the king's somewhat careless nature, while others argued for Anne because of her perceived better air-producing capabilities. I added the word perceived there for the sake of modern sensibilities. We must remember that these were different times and producing an heir was of the utmost importance. Think of King Henry VIII and all of that sort of thing. According to Sir James Melville, the courtier and memoir writer, by 1589, James had got down to tin tacks concerning which one of the sisters to choose. He wrote, His Majesty determined first to seek counsel of God by earnest prayer, to direct him where it would be meetest for the weal, or well-being, of himself and his country, so that after 15 days of advertisement and fervent prayer, he called his council together and told them he had been advising and praying to God the space of 15 days to move his heart the way that was meetest, and that he was resolved to marry in Denmark. Shortly after, an embassy was sent to Denmark, and Anne was married to James by proxy, and she soon set sail for Scotland. But it wasn't smooth sailing. Anne did not arrive as expected, and James was so concerned that he sent one Colonel Stuart to find out what had happened. A fleet of ships had left Norway on the 5th of September, headed by Anne on the Gideon. On the trip, a naval gun backfired, killing two gunners. The next day, another accident killed nine crew. Then in a storm, the Gideon went missing for three days. On the 10th, it sprung a leak and had to put in for repairs. Two of the other ships, the Samson and the Joshua, collided, making the Samson unsailable. After repairs, the Gideon on the 28th of September, set off for Scotland again. But again, a leak was found and it had to return to Norway. Soon after this, the Scots arrived and it was decided to cancel the trip until the following spring. When this news reached James, he made the decision to go to Norway to meet his queen. Thus, on the 22nd of October, he set sail. Now, before we get to a description of James's wedding, I want to point out that it has been argued that James married for the sake of convenience. But let's think about that for a moment. What if any medieval or early modern monarch married for love alone? Nevertheless, James did write some very lovely poetry, declaring his love for his betrothed. But let us compare and contrast that with this, his parting letter to Scotland as he set sail for Denmark and Norway. As to the causes, I doubt not that it's manifestly known to all how far I was generally found fault with by all men for delaying so long of my marriage. The reasons were that I was so alone, without father or mother, brother or sister, king of this realm and heir apparent in England. This my nakedness made me to be weak and my enemy stark. One man was as no man, and the want of hope of succession bred disdain. Yes, 
My long delay bred in the breasts of many a great jealousy of my inability, as if I were barren stock. These reasons, and innumerable others, hourly objected, moved me to hasten the treaty of my marriage, for as to my own nature, God is my witness, I could have abstained longer, nor the will of my country could have permitted. I am known, God be praised, not to be intemperately rash, nor conceitly in my weightiest affairs, neither use I to be so carried away with passion as I refuse to hear reason. Okay, some food for thought there. Let's now go to a description of James uh, by the Danes, uh, what they thought of him, and then to a description of his and Anne's wedding. To the Danes, James appeared as a tall, slim gentleman, thin under the eyes, perhaps lean-cheeked or with deep-set eyes, wearing a red velvet coat, appliqued with pieces of gold so that there was a row of golden stars and another row where the velvet could be seen. He also wore a black velvet cloak lined with sable. He processed to the great hall of Old Bishop's Palace to meet his new bride. According to one chronicler, James went straight to Anna, not pausing to take off his boots. His Majesty minded to give the Queen a kiss after the Scots fashion at meeting which she refused as not being the form of her country. Mary, after a few words privately spoken between His Majesty and her, there passed familiarity and kisses. The half-hour encounter was regarded as a joyful meeting on all sides. Four days later, they were married in the same venue, with all the splendour possible at the time and place. The hall was decorated with tapestries and the couple stood on a piece of red cloth with two chairs covered in red damask. At 2pm, the Danes and Norwegians accompanied James from his lodgings to take him to his bride. When the couple arrived, James walked on the red cloth, standing with his hands on his hips. Anna followed to stand at his side. After some brief singing, the service... A standard homily on marriage was conducted in French by the Leaf Minister David Lindsay, who described the bride as a princess both godly and beautiful, as appeareth to all that knoweth her. After plighting their troth, the marriage was blessed and the bishop delivered an oration in Danish. As the couple left, the local bishop saluted James in Latin, wishing him good fortune in his new marriage and in his reign. I know that you wish it from your heart, James replied. Certainly he wishes it from his heart, said Maitland. Then it is dear to me, replied the king. The wedding breakfast was perhaps less than spectacular, a reasonable banquet being on such an accident, as one observer put it sniffly. Leading Nordic scholars wrote eulogies in Latin and were rewarded with lavish gifts. A month of celebrations followed, including a welcome day of hunting on the island of Hove Doya. On the 22nd of December, the newlyweds set out for Denmark to spend the first few months of their marriage at Elsinore's then newly built Krongborg Castle. As James left, he stood in the sledge and bade all the people good night, not only in Scots but also in Danish. En route, he was well entertained by the way in many of the priests' houses and, according to David Calderwood, perhaps with wishful thinking, he had occasion to consider and take to heart the poverty of the ministers of Scotland and to think upon some remedy. 
On the 4th of January, at Bohos, the king and his queen danced, one of the very few times James is known to have indulged since his childhood displays for visiting dignitaries. Finally, on the 21st of January, James and Anna reached Elsinore, sailing there in a small boat sumptuously furnished in red velvet. They were back in the world of courtly ceremony and they entered the castle in a formal procession with each Scottish councillor escorted by a member of the Danish council. James was greeted by his mother-in-law, Dowinger Queen Sophia, the 10-year-old King Christian IV, Duke Ulrich and Christian's four regents. James spent four months in Denmark. While there, he took time out to contend with local theologians about the doctrine of predestination and to discuss Copernican theory with Tycho Brahe. You must know him. The bloke who lost his nose in a duel and he wore a gold or silver one glued to his face when he was out and about. Whoops, sorry. He was also a famous Danish astronomer, astrologer and alchemist and who had Kepler as his assistant. Yes, that bloke. During his time in Denmark, James picked up a drinking habit. The Danes had a reputation for hitting the grog, for drunkenness was seen as a sign of manliness. Now, being an Aussie, I can't say I agree. I think it is a way of making one look and act like a bit of a drongo. But that's just my opinion. The Danes liked to begin their day with Danish brandy vin, a brandy wine, and after that, they would move on to German ales and Prussian beer. So it was a full-on grog fest. But James's time in Norway and Denmark wasn't all about the grog and partying. While there, as I said earlier, he took the time out to seek out more intellectual pursuits. This is made clear in Stuart's work, The Cradle King, a book which I recommend if you want a good bio about James. Let's read a little bit from this book, and you'll see that, as I mentioned, James enjoyed theological debate literary quests, and scientific inquiry. Slowly, the drunken winter at Alsenore melted into spring. James and his entourage moved on to Copenhagen on the 7th of March, where more academic pursuits awaited him. He visited the Royal Academy and imbibed learned discourse from Hans Olufsen Slangerup, the professor of theology and Anders Christensen, who, as professor of medicine, was an early teacher of modern practical anatomy. In conversation with the Bishop of Zealand, Povel Matthias, James insisted on his love for matters literary. He assured Matthias that from my earliest days I have been addicted to the literary arts, addictus sum literis, and I should like to declare that today. To show his enthusiasm, he sent gifts to the bishop to be bestowed on the university, including seven large books, a gilded cup, and purses of money for some doctors who had given him a book, and for the Copenhagen Hospital. Moving on to Fredericksburg and Olschlem, James reached the island of Sveen in the Sant near Copenhagen on the 20th of March, home and laboratory to the great Dutch astronomer Tycho, Latinized as Tycho Brahe. Brahe had become famous for his 1572 tract, discovering the new star in Cassiopeia, and for his lectures at the University of Copenhagen, where he had promulgated his belief that astronomy could only improve through systematic and accurate observation. 
Anna's father, Frederick II, had sponsored Brehe's research by giving him the island of Sven, on which Brehe built his observatory, Uraniborg. Brehe's home and laboratory was now a popular attraction on the academic tourist circuit. His meteorological diary for 1590 records that in addition to long-term guests such as the Dutch instrument maker Jacob van Langren, Brehe welcomed a constant stream of visitors, both noblemen and academics from Scotland, Germany, Denmark and Eastern Europe. James had a particular interest in Brehe because the astronomer was a correspondent of both George Buchanan and Peter Young. Bray had sent Buchanan his treatise De Novastella when he learnt that Buchanan was composing a poem on the subject. When Buchanan failed to acknowledge receipt, though the book in fact had arrived, Brahe sent another copy, this time with a poem enclosed. Young had met Brahe during the embassy to Elsinore in 1586, and later sent Brahe a portrait of Buchanan, much to Bray's delight, promising to follow it with his life of Buchanan. Brahe's diary records that the King of Scots visited on the 20th of March, 1590, from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. According to Bray, James smiled at seeing a portrait of Buchanan in his library, although, if true, this presumably suggests James's desire to please Brahe rather than a love for Buchanan. Reports tell us that James discussed various scientific matters with Bray, including the Copernican system, and was apparently impressed enough with the Dane to promise him copyright over his writings in Scotland for the next thirty years. Copyright was a pet peeve of Bray's. He had already won blanket copyright for his works in the Holy Roman Empire and France. Three years later, James made this arrangement formal in a document that praised Bray's learning, which he knew not merely from others' accounts or from reading his published work. I have seen them with my own eyes and heard them with my own ears in your residence at Rannaborg during the various learned and agreeable conversations which I then held with you, which even now affect my mind to such a degree that it is difficult to decide whether I recollect them with greater pleasure or admiration. At Rannaborg, Brehe threw a banquet for James, with musicians, entertainers, and plenty of wine, at which the company talked in Latin. James produced three English sonnets on Brehe, and left his mark at Rannaborg, presenting Brehe with two English mastiffs to guard the gates, and setting on the door a Latin epigram. Est nobilis era leonis. Pocere subjectus et debilare superbos. Jacobus Rex. In translation, the lion's wrath is noble. Spare the conquered and overthrow the proud. James wrote the same lines in a hymn book belonging to King Christian's tutor, Hendrik Rammel, and it eventually became the motto on his twenty pounds coin. The king also composed a four-line Latin eulogy in commendation of Tycho Brahe, his works and worth, which Bray proudly placed in his printed works. An English version read, What Phaeton dared was by Apollo done, who ruled the fiery horses of the sun. More Tycho doth, he rules the stars above, and is Urania's favourite and love. 
It appears, however, that James's compositions were helped along by his Chancellor Maitland, a much more accomplished Latinist. Maitland, too, was inspired by the surroundings and poured out Latin epigrams on the Armada, the problems of the Pope, the ill fortunes of France, and Palmer's scheming with the Scots. He then moved on to another set, this time in honour of Bray, with one on Uraniborg, the Muses' royal castle, jewel of the world, rivalling Olympus, nourishing house, your spirits equal to your name. Maitland set his poems on the door of James's bedchamber, where they were taken to be James's and remained for visitors to copy. Even as he was revelling in the high intellectual atmosphere, James was thinking ahead to his return to Scotland, which he envisaged in glorious terms. I pray you, he wrote from Cronborg to the Kirk Minister and Privy Councillor Robert Bruce on the 19th of February 1590, instructing him to waken all men to attend my coming and prepare themselves accordingly. James had his reasons for wanting his homecoming to be spectacular. For God's sake, take all the pains you can to tune our folks well, now against our homecoming, lest we all be shamed before strangers. He thought the homecoming should be a holy jubilee in Scotland. He asked Bruce to persuade the provost of Edinburgh to kit out and send three or four ships to take him home, and to set top craftsmen to work getting the royal residences into shape. James signed off from both himself and his wife, thus recommending me and my new rib to your daily prayers. I commit you to the only all sufficient. The History of the King James Bible podcast is brought to you by Like Flint Radio. You can find them on the web at www.likeflintradio.com. That's www.likeflintradio.com. Now, let's return to a history of the King James Bible Podcast with your host, G.K. G'day everyone. Hope you're enjoying this episode, episode three, and uh, the series in general. Um, uh, Just a little break here to let you know that uh, the series is now available on iTunes. Um, There's a couple of ways you can find it on iTunes. You can go to iTunes and search for A History of the King James Bible Podcast uh, with G.K. Flint as the author, or you can go to the dedicated webpage and there will be links to every episode I put up there. Um, every episode I publish, I'll put a link to iTunes uh, at the bottom of that post. Or alternatively, you can go to Like Flint Radio. That's www.likeflintradio.com. Go to the tab at the top of the page, LFR News, and look for the blog entry, um, King James Bible Podcast Links. And uh, click on that blog entry, and in there will be the links to uh, iTunes um, so that you can find uh, where it is on iTunes. If you wouldn't mind, if you are on iTunes, please go to our spot on iTunes and leave us a rating. Help us along a bit. Um, There's nothing for sale, got nothing to sell. Everything's for free on Like Flint Radio uh, and on the History of the King James Bible Podcast website. Nothing for sale, all for free. Uh, And all we ask is that you share both our uh, websites around with your friends, everyone on your mail list. 
uh, and we'd appreciate that. And thank you to all of those who have generous, generously done so already. Okay, so let's get back to uh, episode three of the series. And here we're going to be talking about uh, the Witches of Berwick. Woo, witches. Here we go. James returned to Scotland in May 1590. And one of the first things he dealt with were the Witches of Berwick. The witch trials of 1590 and 1591 in both Denmark and Scotland stem from both Anne's unsuccessful attempt to sail to Scotland and James and Anne's stormy voyage to Scotland after their marriage. During an investigation into Anne's failed voyage, the Danes cast around for someone to blame and it was suggested that that witchcraft was the cause and so witch trials were held to prosecute those who had tried to stop Anne from reaching Scotland. The trials began in Copenhagen, where a witch confessed to the sorcery and pointed a bony finger at other witches, many of whom were found guilty and sentenced to death. Meanwhile, back in Bonnie, Scotland, the Scots set to some prosecuting of their own. Witchcraft had been outlawed in Scotland since 1563, but according to Stuart, the author of The Cradle King, it went mostly unprosecuted until 1590-1591 in what became known as the Berwick Witch Trials. During the witch trials, more than a 100 suspects were interrogated. Now, North Berwick is a lovely little village overlooking the Forth of Firth. Great success. I found a way to weave the Forth of Firth into a podcast at last. That trophy can sit alongside the one labelled Donfoin from episode 1. So moving on. Investigations began into the storms that buffeted James and Anne's voyage to Scotland. But this wasn't the only reason for the trials. Accusations were also made that there had been an attempt to bring about James's death by burning a wax effigy of him and that the witches had indulged in filthy sexual rituals in the presence of the devil himself. A witch named Agnes Sampson had taken James aside and told him the very words which passed between the King's Majesty and his Queen at Oslo in Norway the first night of marriage, with the answers each to the other. Whereat the King's Majesty wondered greatly and swore by the living God that he believed all the devils in hell could not have discovered the same, acknowledging her words to be most true, and therefore gave them more credit to the rest that is before declared. Now, I truly don't know what to make of this one, but it means that this witch apparently told James about the private conversations he and his wife had on their wedding night, and he believed her. Creepy or what? Agnes testified that she and nine other witches had met with the devil, and that there, a body of wax that she had made was delivered to the devil while they chanted, This is King James the Sixth, ordered to be consumed at the instance of a nobleman, Francis Earl Bothwell. Agnes also said that there would be gold and silver and victual from her Lord Bothwell. When called before the Privy Council, Bothwell of course denied the charges, but was imprisoned. Now James did not believe these accusations, but another witness came forward and said that Bothwell had asked how long the king would live. Now he was in trouble, for this question was seen as an act of treason. This Bothwell was to go on to cause a lot of trouble for James. He escaped from prison and attempted a number of times to kidnap James, launching armed raids on Holyrood when James was in residence. Also, it might be worth noting 
that during this period there were more ructions with the pro-Catholic nobles, and James was under a lot of pressure not just to stay in control of the country, but to remain secure, as he was certain there were traitors within his midst, giving information to the opposing forces about his movements and whereabouts, hence Bothwell's ability to make his moves against James. Now let's get back to the demonic realm and the witch trials and dig further into the character of James. At this point in his life, James was a believer in the demonic realm, and he even wrote a book on the subject. It was said that later in life, he changed his opinion somewhat and thought that much of what passed for witchcraft was fantasy. But that was later. Hence, in 1591, many of the accused witches were sentenced to death. James took particular interest in the case of Barbara Napier, a known friend of Bothwell's who stood accused of consulting with witches. During her interrogation, she claimed she was pregnant, surely a ruse to avoid the death penalty. James was said to be unsympathetic, and in April 1591 he ordered, Try by the medicinal oaths if Barbara be with Ban or not. Take no delaying answer. If you find she be not, to the fire with her presently, and disembowel her publicly. When the jurors allowed her to live, James berated them personally. It seems his reasoning saw the witchcraft charge as secondary to her treasonous actions. Here's part of what he said. And suppose I be your king, yet I submit myself to the accusations of you, my subject, in this behalf, and let anyone say what I have done. And as I have this begun, so purpose I go forward, not because I am James Stuart and can command so many thousands of men, but God hath made me a king and judge to judge righteous judgment. I'm surmising he was quoting John 7.24 here, but I want to point out his attitude. He ruled because God made him king, the divine right. Remember we have discussed in earlier episodes his attitude to kingship and his rebellion against his Tudor Buchanan's teaching. Let's keep this in mind as we proceed through this series. Back to James's harangue. James pointed out that he had almost died because of the witchcraft, and he wanted them to know that he did not fear death for himself. His main concern was, for the common good of this country, which enjoyed peace by my life, as you may collect by mine absence, for if such troubles were in breeding whilst I retained life, what would have been done if my life had been taken from me? From this experience, James eventually would write his book called Demonologies in 1597. A couple of manuscripts written in, in the king's hand still exist. The work displays James's intelligence and his scholarly capabilities. It takes the form of a dialogue between Philomathus, a sceptic, and Epistemon, who answers, who answers his inquiries about witchcraft. It deals with magic, sorcery, witchcraft and spirits. You can find it on the interweb in PDF format if you're interested. And hey, who doesn't want to read a book written by a king? And King James, no less. Just to give you a bit of a taste, let me read a couple of excerpts here before we finish up. Okay, so this first part is from the preface to Demonologies by King James. The fearful abandage at this time in this country of these detestable slaves of the devil, the witches or enchanters, hath moved me, beloved reader, to dispatch in post this following treatise of mine, not in any way, as I protest, 
to serve for a show of my learning and in gene, but only, moved of conscience, to prease thereby, so far as I can, to resolve the doubting hearts of many, both that such assaults of Satan are most certainly practised, and that instruments thereof merits most severely to be punished against the damnable opinions of two principally in our age, whereof the one called Scott, an Englishman, is not ashamed in public print to deny that there can be such a thing as witchcraft, and so maintain the old error of the Sadducees in denying the spirits. The other called Wirrus, a German physician, sets out a public apology for all these crafts folks, whereby, procuring for their impunity, he plainly berays himself to have been one of that profession. And for to make this treatise the more pleasant and factual, I have put it in form of dialogue, which I have divided into three books, the first speaking of magi in general, and necromancy in special, the second of sorcery and witchcraft, and the third continues a discourse of all these kinds of spirits and spectres that appears and troubles persons. Together with the conclusion of the whole work, my intention in this labour is only to prove two things, as I have already said. The one, that such devilish arts have been and are. The other, what exact trial and severe punishment they merit. And therefore reason, what kind of things are possible to be to be performed in these arts, and by what natural causes they may be. Not that I touch every particular thing of the devil's power, for that were infinite, but only to speak scholastically, since this cannot be spoken in our language, I reason upon kind, leaving appearance and differences to be comprehended therein. As, for example, speaking of the power of magicians in the first book and sixth chapter, I say that they can suddenly brought unto them all kinds of dainty dishes by their familiar spirit. Since as a thief he delights to steal, and as spirit he can subtly and suddenly enough transport the same. Now under this kind may be comprehended at all particulars depending thereupon, such as bringing wine out of the wall, as we have heard oft to have been practised, and such others, which particulars are sufficiently proved by the reasons of the general. And such like in the second book of witchcraft in special and fifth chapter, I say improved by diverse arguments that witches can, by the power of their master, cure or cast on diseases. Now by these same reasons that proves their power by the devil of diseases in general, is as well proved their power in special as of weakening the nature of some men to make them unable for women, and making it abound in others more than the ordinary course of nature would permit and such like in all other particular sicknesses. But one thing I will pray thee to observe in all these places where I reason upon the devil's power, which is the different ends and scopes, that God as the first cause, and the devil as his instrument and second cause shoots at in all these actions of the devil as God's hangman. For where the devil's intention in them is ever to perish, either the soul or the body or both of them, that he is so permitted to deal with, God, by the contraries, draws ever out of the evil glory to himself. Okay, so now I'm just going to read another small portion. Um, remember that this uh, book of King James is, is, takes a form of a dialogue. So it's Philomathes and Epistemon uh, dis discussing things of a spiritual nature, uh, like magic and witchcraft, etc., 
Um, it's not the easiest thing to do to read uh, his writings because of the, you know, the old style of ye olde English. And um, so, you know, it's hard to make sense of it as you're reading it in some ways. But I hope it's enough to give you a bit of a taste uh, of the writings of King James. This is uh, his writings in his own words. And like I said earlier, you can find this on the on the Internet in PDF format. So you can go and read the whole thing for yourself. So um, so anyway, here we go. So um, what are we going to read here? So this is a little bit from chapter 3. Follow Matthews. But methinks these means which ye call the school and rudiments of the devil are things lawful and have been approved for such in all times and ages. As in special, this science of astrology, which is one of the special members of the mathematics. Epistemon. There are two things which the learned have have observed from the beginning. In the science of the heavenly creatures, the planets, stars, and such like, the one is their course and ordinary motions, which for that cause is called astronomia, which word is a compound of nomos and asteron, that is to say, the law of the stars. So there he is, um, there's King James giving us a little uh, insight into his knowledge of the Greek there. And this art indeed is one of the members of the mathematics, and not only lawful, but most necessaries and commendable. The other is called astrologia, being compounded of asteron and logos, which is to say the word and preaching of the stars, which is divided in two parts. The first by knowing thereby the powers of simples and sickness, the course of the seasons and the weather, being ruled by their influence. Which part, depending upon the former, although it be not of itself a part of mathematics, yet it is not unlawful, being moderately used, suppose not so necessary and commendable as the former. The second part is to trust so much to their influences as thereby to foretell what common wheels shall flourish or decay, what person shall be fortunate or unfortunate, what side shall win in any battle, what man shall obtain victories at singular combat, what way and of what age shall men die, what horse shall win at match running, and diverse others have more curiously than profitably written at large. Of this root last spoken of springs innumerable branches, such as the knowledge by the nativities, the chiromancy, geomancy, hydromancy, arithmancy, physiognomy, and a thousand others, which were much practiced and holden in great reverence by the Gentiles of old. And this last part of astrology whereof I have spoken, which is the root of their branches, was called by them luck. Pars Fortuna. This part now is utterly unlawful to be trusted in or practiced among Christians as learning to no ground of natural reason, and it is this part which I called before the devil's skull. Philomathes. But yet many of the learned are of the contrary opinion. Epistemon. I grant, yet I could give my reasons to fortify and maintain my opinion. If to enter into this disputation, it would not draw me quite off the ground of our discourse. B. 
besides the misspending of the whole day thereupon. One word only I will answer to them, and that in the Scriptures, which must be an infallible true ground to all true Christians, that in the prophet Jeremy it is plainly forbidden to believe or hearken unto them that prophesies and forespeaks by the course of the planets and stars. If you'd like to learn more about this episode, go to our website, ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. There you'll find reference to the works reviewed in the production of this series. You will also see any relevant graphics and also find credits to those who have helped us in the production of this series. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at gk at likeflintradio.com. A History of the King James Bible Podcast is brought to you by likeflintradio.com. So visit our sister website, www.likeflintradio.com. Okay, so that's it for now. And until the next episode, God bless and hooroo.